Father in heaven, we come, we praise you. That by your grace, Father, we can come to you as sons of God. That we can say we have been adopted as beloved children. That we have an inheritance in you that can never perish or spoil or fade. For this, Father, we praise you. We thank you. We ask now that you would turn our hearts again to Christ. That we would look upon him by faith and rejoice and delight in him. We ask it. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 to 11 of this passage. This passage takes place, as you probably know, the book of Acts was written as sort of the sequel, the second part to the book of Luke. And Luke narrates up to the point where Jesus was crucified and then rose again. And the book of Acts picks up, and Acts tells us, actually in chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that he appeared to his disciples and spent about 40 days ministering on the earth to his disciples before his ascension into heaven. And that, friends, is when this passage takes place at the very end of those 40 days of ministry. So that's setting some context for you here And this narrates a conversation that takes place or begins with a conversation between Jesus and the disciples. So hear now the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. When they met together, they being the disciples, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Some of you know that for two years after college, after I graduated quite a while back, I spent, I spent two years training for the Olympic rowing team. I was trying to make the 1996 Olympic team that was going to compete in Atlanta that year. And for two years, for those two years, everything I did was done with that one goal in mind. Making it on to the Olympic team, and then getting on to the medal stand in Atlanta. And everything I did centered around that. The city that I lived in was determined by that. The apartment that I lived in was determined by that. My schedule was entirely centered around achieving that goal. What I ate, how much I ate, when I slept, how much I slept, When I trained, how much I trained, if I worked, how much I worked, if I traveled, all those things, all of it down to the smallest detail was determined by that goal. 
It was a time of very intense focus in my life. Career, other goals, other ambitions were set aside. I was focused on that one thing. And for those two years, friends, my present every day, the present that I was living, was determined by that future that I was looking forward to. It was determined by my vision of the future, the Olympic trials, and then the Olympic Games. I'll finish the story by telling you I didn't make it onto the Olympic team, but my two roommates did. Eric Mueller and Tim Young both made the men's quadruple skull. They won a silver medal in the Atlanta Games, first time the U.S. has ever medaled in that event. But what was true for me during those years, friends, is true for each one of us. Our vision of the future guides and shapes our present. Our vision of the future or our lack of vision of the future is going to shape the way we live today. So let me ask you, what is your vision of the future? Do you have a vision for your future? Is there a goal, a sense that your life is moving towards something, something that brings shape and focus to your actions in the here and now, in the present moment? Now that Christmas has come and the presents are opened, now what? Is it starting a layaway plan for next year? Many in our world today, friends, many in our society have no vision or sense of the future. We live in an age that has lost its sense of any grand, coherent story or purpose which history is moving towards. And people, friends, living without a vision leads people into really two things which I think are are really the same opposite sides of the same coin. One is just despair. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. There's nothing really worth living for. It's just nihilism. Some people find themselves giving up, giving into depression, deep despair. The other side of that coin, I think, is what I'll just call hedonism. That is living for the pleasures of the day. There is nothing grand or great worth living for. There's really no purpose to which things are moving towards. So I'm just going to get as much pleasure as I possibly can in this life. I'm going to collect around myself as many things and enjoy as many pleasures as I possibly can because there really isn't anything else to live for. And friends, Advent, this season where we celebrate the coming, is meant to give us a vision for the future. The message of Advent, friends, is that history is going somewhere. God indeed has a purpose. It is a grand and a glorious purpose. And when we speak of Advent, the coming, and we celebrate the coming of Christ, we're not actually just celebrating and remembering His first coming, His coming at Bethlehem. 
We're celebrating his second advent as well, his second coming. I think we in the church have very much lost sight of that, but I think earlier Christians had that much more fully in front of their view. And if you look even at some of the old early Christmas carols, they weren't, they weren't silent night, holy night. They were about this present world order being totally turned upside down when Jesus comes back again. Advent gives us a vision for the future. And our vision of the future changes and shapes us in the present. The second coming of Jesus, friends, is not just a nice little theological appendix which we tack on to our theology. The second coming of Jesus, friends, is meant to change us in the way we live today. And is meant to be part of our thinking today. And I want to preach about it this morning. I don't preach about it perhaps often enough. But friends, apostles apparently preached about it all the time because if you read the letters of the New Testament, it is full, completely full of references to the second coming of Jesus. In Paul's little letter to the Philippians, which I preached from this fall, in just the four short chapters of that book, I I counted seven explicit references, explicit references to the day of Christ Jesus or the coming of the Lord. And the same could be said about the writings of Peter or John or, or the other apostles. They were thinking constantly of the coming of Christ And they were talking about it constantly because they understood that the second coming of Christ was going to profoundly shape or should profoundly shape the way the people of God lived today in the present. The apostles were intensely concerned about it and friends We need to be thinking about it for that reason. We need to think about it, friends, because the second coming of Jesus is really of one piece inseparable from his first coming. I know in our culture and in our society, we we, we very much focus on on the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation and the the wonder and beauty of it all. And we love the manger scenes and the, the, the carols and all of that. It is beautiful. It is right that we celebrate it. But we can't forget that his first coming is hand in hand with his second coming. See, friends, Jesus came as Messiah. He came as King. He came to overthrow the powers of sin and darkness and death and establish the rule of God on the earth to establish an order that is holy and right and good. And if you read passages like Isaiah chapter 11, speaks of, of, of amazing, amazing images of the lion lying down with the lamb and a little child leading the wild animals and playing by the, the serpent's nest. And you get this image, these incredible images of a new order of peace where the, the animosity and hostility that has existed on the earth is transformed. And there's a completely new order established in the world. Jesus came as king to establish that order. And he did establish that order. By his death and his resurrection, friends, Jesus did establish 
and inaugurate God's kingdom on this earth. God's rule of love and joy and peace has been inaugurated. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have begun to experience it. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you have experienced ever anything of the love of God in your heart, and you've had a taste of the kingdom, if you know anything of the joy of having sin forgiven, of having the weight and burden of it lifted from your heart, if you've ever experienced that as you confess sin to God, then you have experienced God's kingdom. If you enjoy any measure of peace as you come to Christ, as you pray to Him, then you have experienced a taste of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, friends, has been inaugurated. It has been started in this world. But I don't need to tell you, do I, that it isn't yet complete, is it? It's not yet complete in my heart, in my life. I still succumb to worry. I still succumb to fear. I still succumb to temptation. Christ's rule is not yet perfect, not yet made perfect even in me as a believer. I've been walking with Christ for 21 years. It's still, there's work to be done in my life. His kingdom isn't fully established. And how much more as we look at the world around us? We know, we recognize the reign of Jesus Christ, that reign of peace, that transformed order that Isaiah looked forward to and that the other prophets were anticipating and that even the apostles and Mary were looking forward to at the coming of the Messiah, the King. We look around and we say, well, it's not yet fully here, is it? Jesus inaugurated that kingdom, but, but it's not yet complete. And friends, what the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to and saw as one event, the coming of Jesus or the coming of the Messiah and the full establishment of that kingdom, what they looked forward to before the coming of Jesus as one event, we now see clearly as two. That Jesus the Messiah came first, not in glory, but to suffer. And that he will come again to rule and to reign. And then his kingdom will be fully established. God will finish, friends, what he has started. The two go together. They're inseparable. And that's part of why, friends, our, our confidence, our resting, our hope in the second coming of Christ is not just some silly wish dream, friends. It's not like the coming of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. The second coming of Jesus, friends, is intimately connected with his first coming, the historical events which have already taken place in the birth, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those things have already taken place. They're the first part, and the second part is his return. But it's not a crazy dream. If I told you I had a friend who was going to give me $100 million, you might say I was nuts. But then if I pulled out my bank statement and said, he's already given me $50 million, then you might wake up and really listen. And that is exactly the case, friends, with the second coming of Jesus. Jesus has come the first time. He has inaugurated his kingdom. He will come again. 
The Scriptures tell us something of what it will be like when He comes. His second coming will be, in many ways, like His first. Jesus, when He comes, is going to come in His body. It is going to be a physical, visible, personal appearance of Jesus. The first time Jesus came, He came in a body. The Holy Spirit conceived a body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That body grew for nine months and was born into this world. And that body cried and nursed and wore diapers. That body grew up into a man. That body was taken to the cross. That body was nailed to it. That body died. It was laid in a grave. And that body rose again. The apostles touched that body. Thomas put his fingers in uh, the hands and side of Jesus' body. He ate fish before them. He was with them. He touched them. And part of the message that the angels give to the apostles here in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, is that this same Jesus who is taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. In a body, you will see Him. Jesus is not going to return as Casper the ghost. Jesus is not going to return as some universal spirit. The body of Jesus is somewhere in heaven right now. I don't know if you were there where, but if you were there, you could touch it. You could touch him. And Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back in the same body that he suffered in, that he bore our sins in. It is the same body, but yes, it is Gloriously and marvelously different, isn't it? And so Jesus' second coming, while it is similar to his first coming, is going to be different. The first time Jesus came, he came almost in secret, didn't he? We said last week, unless you'd been out in the fields when those angels gave their announcement to that group of shepherds, unless you'd been out of the fields that night, you would not have known anything spectacular or amazing was happening. And Jesus, even during his earthly ministry, was was telling the disciples, even as he revealed his identity to them, he told them, keep it a secret. People are not going to understand this right now. His first coming, friends, was somewhat secret. But it's going to be very different in his second coming. His second coming, friends, every eye, every human eye, every creature's eye will see him. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 27, he says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In the book of Revelation, John writes in chapter 1, verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. He came in secret. He will come visibly, gloriously, openly. 
And yes, the first time he came, friends, he came in great humility. He was born outside the city. There wasn't even room in the local hotel. They laid that little baby, the king of the universe, in a feeding trough. And he grew up as a humble carpenter's son. He came in humility, but friends, when he returns, he will come in great glory. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 8, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Paul writes in Thessalonians that on the day that Jesus comes, he will come to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. He came in humility. He will return in glory. And friends, it will be different in this way as well, that the first time he came, he came to suffer. The first time he came, when he came, when he took that human nature to himself, it was for the purpose of taking human nature, my nature, yours, to the cross so that he could suffer there in our place. The first coming was a coming to suffer, but the second coming, friends, is going to be a coming to rule and to reign. Jesus announced it to the priests as they were interviewing him as they were preparing to condemn him they asked him are you the christ the son of the god yes jesus replied but i say to all of you in the future you will see the son of man that is christ sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven when jesus returns he will come to rule and to reign when Jesus comes, friends, when the second coming takes place, he's going to bring history as we know it to a close. History is not some continuous, ongoing cycle of endless yin-yang or endless energy. History is linear. It is moving somewhere. It had a starting point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God is going to bring it to its consummation, its conclusion, when the Lord Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, friends, he will judge the world. He will raise the dead. He will bring them together with the living. And they will be judged together. Jesus himself speaks of this. He says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, as the voice of the Savior, and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 25, where he tells, speaks of the great white throne and, and the peoples of the world gathered together and God separating the sheep and the goats. And those who have loved Christ, those who have served him, who have done good works in his name, he says, come enter with me into my glory. And those friends who have rejected Christ, 
those who have lived for themselves instead of the Savior, they will be rejected. There will be a judgment. They're told to depart into everlasting fire. When Jesus returns, he will raise and judge the world. And after that judgment, friends, this world and all its brokenness, all its sin, the reign of death and sin will be fully and completely shattered and broken and he will bring in a wonderfully, gloriously reconstructed, renovated, glorified world. Jesus speaks, excuse me, the apostles speak of this Peter calls uh, the people of Jerusalem to repent. He tells them to repent that God may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, and He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. That is, make everything new. It is a second Genesis. Just as God in the beginning, by His Word, brought this world into existence, that God, by Christ Jesus, when He returns, is going to make everything new. The whole of this broken world is going to be transformed and healed. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you today? Well, friends, every one of us in this room, every person who has ever lived, will one day meet Jesus face to face. We will, each one of us, stand before him. And when we meet him face to face, we will meet him, I'll say in one of two ways, or one of two, two themes are going to predominate. We will meet him as judge. Yes, all of us will meet him as judge. But if your life is outside of his will, if you're building a life for yourself that doesn't have Jesus Christ at the center. If you're looking for significance in this life, first and foremost in your career, or in a relationship, or in money, or in success or power, if you are building a life that does not have Jesus Christ at the center, you will meet him as judge and you will face an eternal condemnation. And the call to you this morning is to repent. If you are there this morning, if you are trying to make this life work without having Jesus at the center, then repent. Turn to Him. Come to God's Word and see you were not made to live without Him. You were made to have Christ at the center. That is the only way, ultimately, that this life is really going to work. And as Jesus Himself says, you can gain the whole world. Forfeit your soul. Be sent to condemnation on that final day. 
if Jesus is not at the center. You do not want to meet him as judge. But there is a second picture of Jesus in the scriptures at the second coming. Yes, it is judged, and we will all stand before Jesus as judge, every one of us. But for those who have known him, for those who have trusted in him, for those who have confessed their sins and live a life of repenting of their sins, for those people, the judge they meet is also the bridegroom. See, the other dominant picture of the return of Jesus is a, bri- is a bridegroom coming finally now to get his bride. And the picture that you see in Revelation and the picture that you see in some of the parables is of Jesus coming back. And yes, it's a joyful thing. It's a wonderful thing because now at last the long-awaited consummation of this wedding between Jesus Christ and His people, the church, at long last they're going to be together. The distance that separated them is now gone. The, the years, the, the, the centuries of waiting, of, of being apart is now over. And so Revelation 19 and other parts of the book of Revelation look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And what they see is the most joyous of human events. They see a wedding feast where bride and groom are united and, 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 and all the friends together celebrate with them. That's the other picture, friends, of the second coming of Jesus. And if you have trusted in him, and if you know him, and if you know anything of his love and have experienced it, and if you know anything of the joy of walking with him and have experienced any of the peace of living in union with Jesus Christ, then let me tell you, what you have experienced is just the tiniest, tiniest foretaste What awaits you? What awaits you, friends, is an experience of the love of God and the love of Christ that would absolutely blow your mind away. Paul writes about that love. He says, I would pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's beyond what you can ever go to the depths of. It's beyond what you can fully ever comprehend and when Christ returns you will begin to experience that love and you will spend eternity plumbing the depths of the Savior's love which you have begun to experience today. I hope, I pray for each one of us hearing this that is the way we will will meet Christ. Christ. Jesus, you, the Savior who loved me and gave yourself for me and all your people, now we will be together forever in a glorious feast that surpasses what I can begin to imagine. My battle with sin will be over. And the brokenness of my life and my heart and the brokenness of this world will be healed and done with. And it will be glorious. 
Is that the way you will meet Jesus? If you've trusted in Him, friends, it is. And I, I, I want that. I want you to, to think on that and rejoice in that and, and let that fill your mind this week because, friends, that glorious vision of the future will utterly transform the way you live today. It will motivate you in a way that nothing else will or can. You know, think, think about that engaged couple. Think about that engaged couple as their wedding day approaches. Maybe you're married. Do you remember the excitement of that? Do you remember the, the energy? Do you remember the longing? Do you remember how you just couldn't wait for that day to come? And do you remember how you you planned for it and prepared for it and how it motivated you to do crazy things like take that old gym membership, that dusty card that you never ever used, and all of a sudden you're at the gym every day for those three months before your wedding day. And the planning and the effort all the energy that goes into thinking about clothes and, and the food and, and the service and the, and the decorations and the party and the dance. Why? Because you can't wait to be with your beloved and rejoice together with them. It motivates you to do all these things, all this energy you're suddenly invested in that. And friends, that's the picture of what our lives today are supposed to be. The life you're living today is one day going to be presented to the Savior who gave himself for you on the cross, who loves you more than you can ever imagine. And this life that you're living now will one day be laid before him. What kind of life do you want to present? You want it to be perfect. You want it to be glorious. Not because you're afraid he's going to punish you or judge you. That has been taken care of, friends. That has been dealt with on the cross. But what awaits you is meeting the bridegroom, the one who has given himself for you, who loves you, who is our together corporately, the the husband of, of, of us, the church, his bride. Just as that engaged couple does everything they can to prepare, are you preparing? What are you about these days, friends? What are you about? What's that vision that's moving you and leading you and shaping your life today? You know, Jesus tells a story about it. He tells a story of the talents, doesn't he? Where where the king comes and he gives talents to his servants, five to one and two to another and one to another, and then the king goes away. And then one day the king returns and and asks for a, a rendering of accounts. What have you done with those talents? That's one of the parables Jesus tells in the context of his second coming. Friends, what will you be about this coming year? 
Where will you invest yourself? Your homework this week is, yes, to sit down. And I hope you have a journal. To sit down and reflect. What is my life going to be about? And does that reflect the purposes and the will of my Savior? Is what I'm going to be about this year, uh, is it going to make my life a more pleasing offering to Christ, my Savior, when He comes? What are you going to be about? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe men... You need to take the time regularly. You need to commit yourself to pursue your wife. To make the time regularly to sit down with her, to ask her, how are you? What is going on? And ask the question and really listen. And then ask her again next week. Or better yet, ask her again three days later. Pursue her. Maybe for some of you, it's your work life. Maybe you're in a job that you really don't enjoy. Maybe your attitude stinks. Maybe, frankly, you're not working as unto the Lord. That is, you remember what the Scriptures call us to, is to do your job, your work for Jesus, because that's whom you're serving. Maybe working with that supervisor who's frankly a pain. Maybe your attitude needs to change. Maybe you need to do some repenting and ask forgiveness, first of God and then perhaps of them as well. Yes, that is what the scriptures call us to. To renew your attitude in work. What about your finances? Let me bring up one. What about your giving to Christo Rey? Do you have a plan for giving to Christo Rey? Do you have a plan for investing your treasure in either this body or whatever body you are a member of? I hope you do. Christ your Savior calls you to it. He calls you to have a plan. That plan is rooted in the scriptural teaching of the Old Testament of giving 10%. It needs to be a plan, friends. It's not showing up and throwing whatever happens to be in your pocket into the offering plate. It's having a plan for how I'm going to honor God with all of my treasure. Yes, my tithes and everything else. The second coming of Jesus brings a focus to our labors. And the second coming of Jesus, friends, should renew us in our strength. It should give us a new grace to persevere. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter where he's speaking about Jesus' second coming and that resurrection that will take place. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Firm in your faith, that is. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Keep obeying Jesus. Do not stop. Do not grow weary in doing good. Because Jesus is coming. And He's coming soon. And the effort and the perseverance, and yes, sometimes the tears, because it brings suffering, doesn't it? Persevere. Persevere because you will stand one day before your glorious Savior who loves you. And then you know it will not be in vain. When he stands before you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. When he says to you, come, enjoy the riches of my eternal love and grace forever and ever and ever. However hard it may be today, brother or sister, it is worth it. It is worth it. Christ is coming. Your labor, your obedience, your suffering for him is not in vain. Father, give us grace to fix our eyes upon our coming Savior, to rejoice in Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.